Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Hello, this is Bob Bazanko, co-host of the Green and Red podcast, and we are here with a very special bonus episode right now. I'm going to be talking to a couple great uh, activists and comrades who are currently in Minnesota with the Pipeline 3 protests, um, Scott Parkin and Jake Conroy. And um, we, as always, thank you for uh, patronizing the Green and Red podcast, listening to us, watching us on video uh, please share and, and subscribe and all that kind of good stuff. So without further ado, um, from Minnesota, I think we're going to start with Scott, I believe, who's just going to give us a little bit of background uh, about what Pipeline 3 is about. Uh, the media is covering it, but not really providing a deep context. Yeah. We, so, uh, hey, everybody, this is Scott Parkin, Green and Red podcast co-host. And uh, Colin, in, we're actually by the Minneapolis airport, but we've spent the last few days in northern Minnesota, like northwest Minnesota, up around Clearwater County, Hybrid County, uh, Minnesota, uh, around a, a mobilization called the Treaty People Gathering. It's to stop the Line 3 pipeline, which is being built by uh, a Canadian oil company called Embridge, uh, Embridge Oil. And so it's a 337-mile-long uh, pipeline that crosses 200 different waterways and has a carbon footprint that's the equivalent if it gets locked into 50 coal-fired power plants. So that's like one key part about that. So the implications of ecosystems, water, you know, bodies of water, and then and then the climate are pretty pretty profound with this and it's and it's bringing in tar sands oil from the Alberta tar sands which we've talked about in the past. So that's a real key part about this. The other important part is that it's crossing a lot of indigenous territory and it's viola violating a lot of treaties that were signed in the 1850s uh, between the US government and between uh, Native American nations. And so the gathering we were out was called the, the Treaty People Gathering and it was you know, a, an event with a series of uh, direct actions aimed at trying to get the Biden administration and the state of Minnesota and ultimately uh, Enbridge, the oil company, to respect these treaty rights. And so what we saw the last few days is we saw a series of like big marches and we saw, or we saw one big march 
And then we saw um, a series of like basically mass direct actions. And there were there were two. And I will say that for the last six months, there's been a, a, a pretty steady drumbeat of direct actions at construction sites related to the pipeline. And so on Monday, about a thousand people marched to the headwaters of the Mississippi, where Enbridge is actually trying to drill under the Mississippi. They are literally trying to drill under the Mississippi River in two different spots um, of the many spots where they're drilling. Uh, and then there was another, uh, there's what they call a pump station where Enbridge uses that facility to kind of move the oil along. That was also under construction. There was another mass, mass direct action there. The first one at the Mississippi has resulted in now an ongoing occupation of the, it's a, it's a boardwalk, but it's a drill pad at the Mississippi. And so like indigenous leaders have basically set up an encampment there. Lots of activists have joined them. And at the other location, we, you know, it was a, it was a pretty uh, fierce and edgy sort of action, which was ultimately uh, resulted in a, a 30 plus hour blockade and over 150 people have been arrested. And those 150, a, a number of those 150, a very few of them have been released from jail and a number of them are still in jail and they're being de denied like basic, you know, human rights, like medication, access to lawyers, phone calls outside, et cetera. They've also been spread out to like a number of uh, different counties in northern Minnesota. There's actually an interagency task force, which includes federal, state, local, county jurisdictions. It's called the Northern Lights Task Force, which is like a kind of a fucked up name. And then that task force also, you know, um, collaborates quite a bit with the private security for Enbridge. And then the last thing I'll say is the sort of like dramatic one of the dramatic, many dramatic things happened on Monday, but one of the most dramatic things that happened is that the border patrol, uh, which clearly polices the northern border, basically like came in and buzzed at the pump station multiple times, like came down and blew up debris at least three times trying to scatter protesters. And then if you look at like what border patrol whistleblowers tell us is that it's a pretty common tactic that the border patrol uses when migrants are trying to cross the southern border. And uh, the, the Northern Lights Task Force released a uh, um, press release, which they never do, which actually said this was unintended consequence of what we were doing. We we're just trying to like fly around and see what was going on. But very clearly, they were basically in some sort of like less than lethal sort of like dispersal tactic. Boom, that was a lot. Yeah. Um, I'll have to think of something to ask Jake now. Uh, no, um, Jake, you've been like Scott through a lot of um, actions like this. I just wonder if you wanted to amplify on what you're seeing, what kind of uh, actions you've seen, what, you know, the state's response. Yeah, I had... What people should know. Sure. Um, I had an opportunity to, to be a part of and witness both actions. Um, and it was really inspirational and exciting for me. And I think it was for a lot of the people that, that were there. I think there was close to about 2,000 people in total that participated in one way or another. Um, and I think, you know, Scott had, has talked about this in the past, but I think, you know, it wasn't this kind of opportunity for people that had talked a lot and trained a lot um, around the idea of nonviolent direct action. And it's finally an opportunity to put it into practice. And, and so I think it was great to see a lot of people 
you know, get to see it in action and what it looks like and what the power of it can be. And, and it doesn't have to be necessarily this big, scary thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, the radical, like locking things down and, and chaining yourselves to things. And all those things happen. And that was important, but it wasn't the only form of direct action that people could take. Um, you know, a lot of the time I spent was on that boardwalk that Scott mentioned that led out to kind of the, the, the proposed drill site. Uh, to go into the Mississippi. And, you know, it, it was like a, a few hundred people occupying this boardwalk in a marshland and bringing in tents and supplies and food and figuring out how people can kind of hold that space for the long haul. Um, and I think that aha moment, I think, for a lot of people that realize, like, here's a way that we can take direct action. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean locking to something. Maybe it means I'm going to go collect tents and supplies and food and deliver it. Or I'm going to make sure that people feel safe by doing, like, security out front, or I'm going to sleep in my tent on a boardwalk where we're not supposed to be. And realizing that like direct action looks like a lot of different ways. Um, but working together, um, you know, we, we have a really, you know, big, big way of making uh, a lot of impact in a very direct way, um, sending a very direct message. Um, and we get to do it together. And you said there's like 2000 people there. Um, I'm assuming that there are local, is it local indigenous leaders who are kind of have organized most of this. And I think, Scott, you told me a few days ago, there's a group of clergy as well. So what kind of like, what kind of organizations occurred before these actions in the last few days? Yeah. Uh, the couple things I would say about that is that this is very much led by um, indigenous leadership, which lives on like the wide earth, like the wide earth reservation, the Red Lake reservation who are Ojibwe and uh, maybe ask Jake to help me pronounce this. Uh, Anishinaabe. Anishinaabe. Um, yeah, and so the leadership are, are from those two tribes, and they've, they've actually been fighting this campaign for seven years, uh, and it's like sort of built up momentum, and because there's climate concerns, we've seen a lot of local climate groups like uh, based here in the Twin Cities, which have been uh, also kind of part of this fight, and it's been pr growing pretty steadily. Um, a couple other things I'll say in response to your question is, uh, you know, national faith organizations actually put a call out for people um, of, of faith across cross denomination, cross religion to come and join. And so we were out there with a lot of like black ministers, Catholic priests, rabbis. Uh, there was a big contingent of Buddhists. Um, and so we probably saw 300 clergy come in from around the country to participate in the, in the events of the last few days. And the, the other big contingent of people that we saw were actually students. And they've been doing a lot of organizing on college campuses throughout Minnesota. About a couple of months ago, they actually had a campus day of action around around the state. And I think in other states as well, that were like, it was pretty radical, like lots of walkouts, lots of people blocking traffic into the university. I believe it was at Carleton College where the students put up a tree sit in the, in the college president's front yard saying that they should cut any ties they have with corporations that do business with uh, Enbridge, you know, that sort of thing. And so it's a very across the, uh, it's been a, a wide spectrum of people who have been uh, getting involved. Jake, this is a little more kind of amorphous, but um, let me put in a plug for you. You have a, an amazing, uh, we call it a show, I don't know, called Three Minute Thursdays, which is ostensibly about activism on vegan rights on animal rights and veganism, but it's it's so much more than that. And I tell you, I watch it all the time because I learn so much from it. Um, what have you seen in, in, in Minnesota that kind of going forward, people 
can actually take and apply wherever they are and whatever issue they're doing, whether it be uh, animal rights or a pipeline or stopping a war or Black Lives Matter or whatever. Yeah, I think uh, I well, thank for thank you first off for watching my YouTube channel. Um, but yeah, I think like the takeaways for me that I, I talk a lot about on the on my YouTube channel is about you know as vegans and animal rights activists, there's this whole world of of stuff that's going on that's terrible. And we need to work and, and fight against, um, and there's lots of different ways to do it, and that we need to make sure our, our struggles for liberation are collective and that we we incorporate and work on a lot of different issues uh, alongside one another because they all have equal value um and so to that end like i what i saw at this camp is something that i've seen in the pipeline fights like like keystone and uh, dapple and things like that where there's a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds a lot of different uh strategies and tactics that they feel comfortable with or maybe they're opposed to um, from a lot of different fights coming together and, and working on these things and uh, on specific campaigns in really big ways and, and working together. Um, and so getting to see that kind of up close, this was actually my first like big action camp around pipeline um, projects. Um, so getting to see that firsthand was really inspiring. Like Scott said, just seeing people coming from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, disagreements on strategies and tactics, but coming together under the, the banner of like, we need to stop line three. Um, and resist these projects for a variety of different reasons, I think was really inspiring. And it really shows the power of like, if you just work together um, under you know, a liberatory framework towards these common goals, like we can make change that is lasting and it's important and it grows people power and it grows our movements, um, not apart from one another, but starts to grow them together and forward, um, which I think is really exciting. And the, the second thing I really like about these type of campaigns, like you said, there's so many different ways for people to plug in. Like we were very like privileged to, to be able to travel from our homes up into Northern Minnesota and, and fight alongside these folks uh, and being welcomed there and participating. But there are literally way, like dozens and dozens of ways people can can participate from anywhere. And I think that's, first, I think that's an important uh, sign of like that uh, a campaign is, is doing it right is that we can go after the banks we can go after the insurance companies and those places live or excuse me those those things entities exist in lots of different places around the world cities and suburban areas and no matter where you are you can go hand out leaflets you can do a protest you can do a banner hang you can do a disruption in your local bank in your local insurance agency um, to support and, and amplify the the fight going on here in in uh, northwest minnesota so um to me like Campaigns like these, like this, are, are a perfect example of how we bring people together, how we bring movements together, how we fight strategically with smart tactics, and how ultimately I think we win. I have just a couple um, kind of questions, and then you guys can add whatever you think is important. First, I just think kind of a more of an observation. I've, I've seen video of it, and what struck me, much like last summer, is the, what I call the moral courage of the people there who are kind of fearless, you know. Like they were last summer, because whenever you see, you know, these insane people, Proud Boys or whatever, they storm the Capitol, like looking like freaking avatars and they're carrying ARs and stuff. And these folks here are just using kind of their their collective power, which, you know, kind of, you know, kind of gets me choked up. So that's that's been really beautiful. Um, are there also kind of parallel kind of political or legal or, or economic um, strategies, you know, like, you know, going after the banks that that um, have been. Uh, so subsidizing these pipelines, you know, financing them, um, things like that. Um, you know, uh, how has the ruling class, you know, kind of 
Uh, I mean, you, do you, are there other ways of going after the ruling class besides specifically doing it here in Minnesota? Yeah, I would I would say that there's been a, a long-standing campaign targeting Wall Street banks over the funding of of this pipeline, and we've seen actually a number of like days and weeks of actions over the last six months. Um, one thing I didn't say when I did the sort of context setting at the beginning is that the pipeline construction had not did not really begin until early December because they were waiting on the state of Minnesota, most notably the governor Tim Waltz, Democrat Tim Waltz, to sign the permit, which he did after the election, the, the federal election was resolved. Um, and so one thing that people can do is, you know, take action at their local bank. And so there's there's 20 something banks which are actually involved in financing of the project uh, and financing of Enbridge. And, you know, some of the bigger ones are the ones, you know, they're the, they're the banks that are on your street corner. They're also the same banks which have been funding and managing, you know, raising money for these oil companies and includes like Citibank, TD Bank, uh, MUFG, which is a Japanese bank and its U.S. retail outlet is Union Bank um, and a, another bank called Mizuho. And then, you know, two Japanese banks are funders of this. And then also like banks like Chase and Wells Fargo have actually also been super involved in the project. And so you can actually see lots of people taking action across the country and cities across the country. I think they're actually starting to pick up again in solidarity with this occupation on the Mississippi River and these folks still being in jail um, this week. But um, you can definitely take action. And then we're also like a, a big strategy with this with this action and this campaign was to, um, you know, get Biden to act. You know, we saw Obama and Biden ultimately reject Keystone. We see a lot of court stuff playing out with the Dakota Access Pipeline. And so the goal of this is it would be really easy for the Biden administration to act and just like it would even just put this project on a pause because Enbridge, since they got their permits in December, have been going like full, full on trying to build it as quickly as possible before there is some sort of political response to shut it down. So like, Raising hell on the banks, raising hell on the federal government, particularly the Biden administration, is going to be really important. If, especially if you live in D.C., lots of our friends in D.C. are organizing actions targeting Biden over this right now as we speak. I would also add that, like Senator Klobuchar in, in Minnesota, has been going on and on about climate change. Now this is a fight for our future, and so forth and so on. But she's also in, in, in essentially allowing this pipeline project to move forward in her state. Um, even yesterday, she was like posting a bunch on Twitter about climate change and how it's important we fight back against it. And so I think, you know, she's a, a you know, a worthwhile target in Minnesota as well to, to really put pressure on, to run it up the chain um, of command, so to speak, and really try to get this pipeline stopped. And and for our comrades and who are in jail, 150 people still in jail, there's a, there's a big pressure campaign now on the Attorney General of Minnesota, uh, Keith Ellison, to do something about these folks being held now for some of them going on 48 hours without access to medication, phone calls, lawyers, that sort of thing. And, and we'll post all relevant information in, in the show notes. Let me go back for a minute, and I know like neither of you are engineers, but like drilling underneath the Mississippi just kind of blows my mind. That just seems utterly like fucking insane. Like what are, what's the, like how does that actually happen? How do they actually do that? Like. That can't be, you know, I keep thinking like, that can't fucking be, you can't drill under the Mississippi, you know, with tar sands oil. Like, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know. I also am not an engineer, which may surprise a lot of people. Um, <laughs> so I'm not, not entirely sure. But I, what I will say is like standing on that platform on the bank of the Mississippi, 
was really kind of an eye opener for me because, you know, I'm, I grew up on the East Coast. I live on the West Coast and I've driven across country a bunch of times. You cross the Mississippi and it is massive. Like it's a massive river. But you're you're standing at the you know, we weren't at the the, you know, the start of the Mississippi, the, but the headwaters of the Mississippi. But I feel like we we're fairly close. I mean, this the Mississippi was maybe four feet, five feet, six feet wide. Um, and so it's, it's small. So from an engineer perspective, maybe it's possible, but, but to me that more spoke like of like, you could drop like, you know, a little bit into this little Creek and it just, it just, I guess it was just like a visual reminder that like something so massive that we think of the Mississippi really starts at this little tiny place and like to, to corrupt or spill or, or destroy this little piece just really expands, uh, you know, across the whole country. Um, and I guess in a way, like a kind of like an organized metaphor, I guess, but like, like something so small and, and that, you know, that happens here really can spread in really dangerous ways or, you know, positive ways when it comes to organizing, but like really spread effectively and, 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 and bad, terrible ways across the entire country. Um, so to me, that was like a big kind of eye opener of what I saw firsthand. One thing I'll say, and, and like this isn't totally our like our history or stories to tell, but like the spot where we're at, that was being occupied, which was like the kind of like drill pad or the or whatever, it was like it's also like traditional territory of uh, you know some of these folks on the on the White Earth Reservation, who you know going back probably thousands of years, um, and so and it's like even if even if a spill were to happen and they were able to save it further down the the river from where we were it would still be like, like a huge pollution on this like sort of traditional land on this traditional territory these marshes there's a lot of rice growing that goes on there which is a, a, a kind of like a staple for the communities up there and so that was also a thing to think about the other thing i'll say about the river too is that where we were it was like it was like five or six feet across and when we drove south yesterday we actually crossed the mississippi again and it's the mississippi that you would imagine like the, the ones you see in St. Louis or New Orleans, it was like huge all the way across. And it was just like really, it really impressed upon me about how it starts as something small and becomes like so much bigger as it, we head further south. I, I assume that there's some like, you know, some actual engineers maybe had something to do with that, but still. No, it's, it's quite, quite remarkable. Um, is there anything you want to like ask each other? My kind of my outgoing question would basically be what happens going forward. But before we get to that, um, also, I think we, we talked about this. Um, well, before you left, Scott, you were kind of saying this is going to be the first time anything like this has happened in quite some time because of COVID, you know, last year, you know, there was a, bun a bunch of a ton of spontaneous things, but this is, this is different, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, they, they have been kind of working on this for like a month of, I mean, it kind of came together pretty quickly, but they, it came together probably in a month or so, maybe a little over a month. Uh, one of the requirements was to come that you had to be vaccinated, but you know, it was, it was a little bit of a, it's a little, to, to be in a, an encampment with a lot of people, like hundreds of people, 2000 people. And after spending the last year and sort of like pandemic, social distance mask, and, and there was still a lot of like those sorts of things going on, but it's still like you're, it's the first time I'd been around a lot of people in, in that capacity for a long time. And it's like a little, I wouldn't say it's jarring, but it's a little bit like, okay, I have to readjust. The thing I found interesting about camp, or one of the many things I found interesting about camp was, you know, 2000 people showed up with a general idea of what was going to happen, but very few people knew what the actual plan was. Um, and I think 
it, it was really something to be said of like trusting in leadership and in this case trusting in, in indigenous leadership to come up with like smart solid strategies and tactics and and put them into practice um and so i i, I thought it was pretty amazing to see two thousand people show up not really know what's going on and just being like all right like i'm down for whatever you all need me to do I mean, because a large majority of us didn't even know what these actions were going to be until the very last minute, you know, um, and sometimes they were fluid and kind of moving and changing as they were actually happening. Um, and so I, I, to me, it was just kind of this inspirational moment of like, here's all these people that were just, they traveled from all over the country. Some came from, I think there are some people there from like Australia or, you know, people traveling around the world to show up and be like, you know, we are ready to throw down for this project or excuse me, for this, this campaign. Um, and we're down to like fully trust the leadership to make these these decisions, um, and and we're going to roll with it because you know we trust you, we believe in you, and we believe in the campaign. Um, and and to me that seemed really special. And and at times it felt a little chaotic, like what what's going on? But at the end you're sitting here now and you're like, man, this was like such a a well thought out strategy and using some really like creative tactics. Um, and it really seems like a successful weekend. And I think it's only helping to, to kick off this campaign into a higher level and higher gears. Um, I'm really excited to see how it, it takes shape, not just in Northwest Minnesota, but how it's going to shape up around the, around the country in the United States and around the world um, and all the different ways people can start doing solidarity action. So it was, a, it was an inspiring week, uh, you know, a few days for me, for sure. Uh, I think on about, I don't know, a month or two ago, on, I guess it was on one of your three minute Thursdays, you kind of did like <clears throat> kind of like six things you can do to be an activist or something. I can't remember specifically. Um, have you learned anything that you would add to that now? Because it's a th like, you know, the first post pandemic um, move, you know, action. I mean, is this is that going to change the way these are done going forward? No matter what your issue is. The pandemic. Yeah. Um. I'm not sure. I, I think we, Scott and I were talking about this earlier, but I do feel like we kind of, we've all, or most of us have been in this situation where we've been uh, locked down or in quarantine, or we haven't really seen people and our, our like way of life, our personalities, the way we interact with people. I think a lot of that's changed uh, just because we've been out of it for a year, year and a half. And so I think like that can be a little intimidating. It does feel weird to be like, oh, I'm in this camp and I'm in this space with 2000 people and not a lot of us are wearing masks because presumably we're vaccinated, but maybe not. I don't really know. And again, there's like a trust issue there. But I also think like this is a really cool opportunity to kind of like reinvent who we are as, as individuals and as activists and like come up with new and creative ways to move forward that maybe we haven't thought about. And like, I don't know, it, it does feel like a, there was a stopping point. And now for me, this camp very felt very much like, oh, this is this new beginning of what's to come next. And it's it's exciting like we can invent or reinvent that to look however we want and i think we have an opportunity to make it look you know something different something new something creative um to be bigger and better uh, individuals to be bigger and better communities and and bigger and better activist circles um that hopefully leads to to better bigger bigger things i guess my last question and then you guys can take it any direction you want is what what's uh supposed to be happening going forward? Will there continue to be people sitting sitting in, blockading? Will there be kind of a, a retrenchment and then figuring out where to go next? Uh, will there be a continued presence uh, at the at the site of uh, uh, production, the site of construction, this kind of like anarcho-syndicalism in, 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 in action? 
Yeah, I mean, what I'll say is, one, there's a, a good number of the people who had come up there this weekend are still there, like, supporting that you know, that occupation, that encampment on the on the boardwalk at the drilling pad. And so that's an important thing that's going to be going on. But the, the other thing is that, you know, Enbridge had actually had to put a pause on some of its construction around waterways through April and May because of the requirements of around the permits related to bird migration. And so in June, that's when they start picking back up on their construction of waterways. And so the sort of stop line three movement, if you will, basically is recognized that this is where we need to, to like really step it up and like have lots of action. So I would actually say, say through at least the summer, potentially into the fall, depending on how much delay and disruption happens, that we'll, you know, we'll see a lot of people taking a lot of action. And there's like lots of calls for people to get involved. If people listening want to check it out, you can go to the Treaty People Gathering website. You can go check out the GNU Collective, G-I-N-I-W Collective on Facebook, uh, Honor the Earth, which has their own camp, which is called the Welcome Water Protectors Camp, is actually a pretty open place for people to go get plugged in. There's probably about half a dozen camps across northern Minnesota that are indigenous-led, mostly indigenous women-led, uh, which are going to be taking action um, uh, throughout the summer and fighting and fighting this pipeline because we're kind of in the we're in the we're, it was a marathon and now it's a sprint right to see how much we can slow it down and, and stop it and and hopefully in the very least get the Biden administration to act in some way. Anything, Jake? You want to add to that? Or I hear you guys were just like the Capitol rioters, huh? According to certain certain people. That's right. Yeah, that was definitely us. Um, no, I think Scott. I think Scott wrapped it up pretty well. Um, I, I'm really inspired to see how people are going to move forward from this. And I, like I like I said, or and Scott said, like there's great ways to plug in up here, but there's so many great ways with so many different organizations and people around the world that are are stepping up for this this kind of like next sprint uh, um, towards the end goal. And I think. I think if history tells us anything, we have the power to, to stop these things. We have the power to change these things. Um, and I don't think this one's going to be any different. I think if we really dig our heels in, we're creative, we're smart, we're strategic. I think we're going to win. One thing I'll say real quick about your, your Capitol riot comment is, you know, a couple of months ago, maybe in, in early March, we actually had Jamie Hinn on who talked about Big Oil's uh, spin machine. And so that's what Enbridge has been doing since these actions happened. And the Enbridge PR team came out yesterday. It was actually reported in The Intercept uh, comparing what happened, particularly at the Pump House, to the Capitol riot, which is a, a complete, you know, uh, it's, it's a lie. It's a complete distortion of what the Capitol riot was, and it's a complete distortion of what happened. Everything that happened on Monday at the, at the Pump House in particular was like nonviolent. It was people disrupting and putting themselves in the way of things. But it's very much in the in the uh, in the tradition of like civil rights movement, Gandhi, that sort of thing. Whereas the Capitol riots were just a bunch of like right wing hoodlums or thugs or whatever you want to call them, you know, out to cause trouble and 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 hurt people. I would think you know outside of the QAnon and nutty MAGA right, that's not going to go very far. You know, even for like semi reasonable people, know that that's like nuts. So. Anyway, um, if you guys have anything to add to it, but I'm going to, you know, uh, this is Bob Bazanko, co-host of the Green Red Podcast, with a special episode of the Green Red Podcast featuring our co-host Scott Parkin and Jake Conroy, activist and organizer extraordinaire, and uh, check out Three Minute Thursdays on his YouTube channel, 
uh, I always like get the biggest uh, kick talking to you guys. I learned so much. And so um, Scott, oh, also the Cranky Vegan. I'm sorry, I keep saying Three Minute Thursdays, which is the name of your your show, whatever I call it, but you are the Cranky Vegan as well. So follow on uh, on, on all the social media. And I guess Scott can uh, tell tell you all about uh, Green and Red if you want to um, make sure you you know you share and subscribe and all that or whatever else. But Scott's the the information on that one. So um, this has been wonderful. And remember, you get stuff like this on Green and Red podcast. You get Noam Chomsky on Green and Red podcast, and you get all kinds of cool stuff uh, in lieu of snarky uh, New York celebrity uh, media wars. So anyway, uh, Theo. Yeah, and want to say thanks to all the folks that. We met over the weekend in in Minnesota who stepped up, took action, made a lot of things happen. Our comrades who are still in jail and the, you know, indigenous-led movements in Minnesota have been really fighting, fighting hard. So, you know, looking forward to looking forward to continue talking about this story. Thanks everybody. Thanks so much for having me. It's our pleasure. <laughs>